you know, if you're a kind of an average runner and you're looking at staying up for 20, 30, 40 hours, we absolutely recommend that you sleep. And I think there's a big macho element to these endurance events. And a lot of people I speak to, a lot of athletes I speak to, I'll say, you know, what's your strategy or what are you planning on doing? And they'll say, oh, no, I don't need to sleep. I'm just going to keep running. You know, I promise you, if you just take five or ten minutes sleep, you'll make up that time in terms of performance. You know, the physical detriment that that intense sleep deprivation has to your performance will be will be mediated by just a little bit of sleep. You'll perform a lot better. Transylvania Mountain Festival, this is Anka Berglo and today we talk about sleep with Dr. Charlotte Ellsworth. Charlotte is a sleep specialist and human movement scientist. Having completed her PhD in human movement biomechanics and physical activity performance and participation, she moved to the French Alps and took a postdoctoral position at Geneva University Hospital in 2009, where she worked between the sleep laboratory and the laboratory of kinesiology. This is where her interest in sleep developed. Charlotte has held several academic posts over the past few years where she researches the impact of altitude on sleep and the impact it has on cognition and performance. Living in Chamonix Mont Blanc, she is well placed to take theoretical and empirical work out into the field. She is one of the several senior researchers responsible for running a research study during the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc each summer, where the impact of severe sleep deprivation is assessed in relation to runners' performance and psychomotor vigilance and the interaction between homeostatic sleep pressure and circadian rhythm under explicit environmental stresses. Charlotte runs sleep clinics where she advises, assesses and aids in the diagnosis of individuals with a wide range of sleep problems and disorders. In addition to this, she works in an educational capacity in the corporate and public domain. She delivers lectures, workshops and seminars that primarily serve to raise awareness surrounding the importance of sleep. She is particularly interested in the cognitive and health-related impairment we suffer, directly resulting from disturbed sleep and the effect this has on performance. Thank you for joining us this episode of the podcast, Charlotte. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Uh, Charlotte, you're a somnologist. What is a somnologist? Uh, Well, so for those who don't know, a somnologist or somnology is the scientific study of sleep, if you like. So it's it's studying sleep disorders, disorders of sleep and disorders of wakefulness. Um, So really, it's just someone who um, helps people who have sleep disorders. What happens during sleep? Uh, Well... (laughs) Lots of things. And for a long time, we didn't really know. We know that sleep is really critical. We know that sleep is, 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 is a fundamental necessity um, for life. But for a long time, we didn't really know what happened. We don't really know why we sleep, but we know during sleep, it's really a, a process of recovery and restoration. So we know that we have a lot of physical recovery and we have a lot of cognitive recovery um, from the preceding day. And it also prepares, sleep serves to prepare our body for the upcoming, de- for the day ahead, for the kind of upcoming um, processes that we need to function for the day ahead. So we know in terms of physical repair, it's associated with muscle repair, tissue repair. Cognitively, we know that it's really um, uh, it's really connected to memory, um, cognition, uh, feeling more alert. We know that uh, long-term memory, short-term memory is all organised during sleep. So there's lots of kind of cognitive and both physical processes that are that are helped with sleep, with good sleep. With good sleep. Do we need uh, different amounts of sleep, depending on our age? Yeah, absolutely. You know, sleep over a lifetime changes, and we require different amounts of sleep as we get older and as we move through our lifespan. So we know, uh, I'm sure lots of us who have small children are aware that, you know, babies sleep a lot. Babies sleep, uh, you know, hours and hours a day, 20 hours a day when they're newborn. And that sleep necessity kind of reduces as, as children get a little bit older and they start sleeping and we start sleeping monophasically. Babies sleep very polyphasically, so they sleep all throughout the day. And as we get older, we slip more into a monophasic sleep pattern. So we'll sleep one time throughout a 24-hour period. And, you know, really, I think uh, lifestyle, modern lifestyle dictates that. But as we get older, we require less sleep. Um, to adolescence, we move into the kind of adolescent time zone and adolescents absolutely require more sleep due to the kind of growth and kind of cognitive and hormonal adjustments that are happening through puberty. We know as we move into adulthood, we will probably require the, the maybe the least amount of sleep that we will need during a lifespan. And again, as we move then into our 
older, older kind of age groups, the elderly, um, start to require, well, we have very fragmented sleep, so their sleep changes in terms of fragmentation. So they sleep um, for shorter periods um, and they start to kind of reduce the amount of sleep. You see lots of elderly people reduce the amount of sleep they need and they don't need as much and they sleep in a very fragmented fashion. So they'll sleep for short amounts, short periods throughout the day and often short periods throughout the night. They often wake up very early in the morning. So sleep does change over a lifespan and at certain times in our life we absolutely need different amounts of sleep yeah. yeah and in different uh yeah in different stages of the sleep of our sleep we sleep better so i've read that the sleep mechanism is broken down in five stages we have the waking stage three non-rem stages and one rem stage where rem stands for rapid eye movement what type of brain waves are predominant in each of these phases and what do they matter? Well, I mean, this, our, our, our brain waves change throughout our sleep, as does the kind of the, the call it the, our sleep changes throughout a sleep cycle. So as you've already mentioned, we have five different stages of sleep. And when we're awake, we have kind of alpha, alpha waves as, as predominant in our brain. If you measured it, your brain waves with an EEG, which is um, me measuring the electrical activity of your brain, you would see um, alpha waves, which is a certain type of brain wave. And as we fall asleep, as we go into stage one, stage two, stage three, our brain waves change and become kind of uh, slow. They slow down, if you like. So stage one, uh, for those who don't know, I'll go through it briefly. We sleep in cycles. We sleep in sleep cycles. And each sleep cycle it lasts roughly 90 to 110 minutes. So through a night, we roughly have, we roughly move through four to six sleep cycles. So a sleep cycle will start off in stage one sleep, and stage one sleep I always describe as kind of your nodding dog. It's you know you're falling asleep and struggling to. It's being sleepy and falling asleep. Stage two and three is when your body is really preparing for good sleep. So you've fallen asleep, your muscles start to relax, your blood pressure drops, your heart rate decreases, um, and your body's really preparing itself for some good deep quality sleep. Stage four, you move into, stage three and four is really when you're moving into very, very, very deep sleep. So you'd struggle to wake someone up during deep sleep. And that's when you move into your kind of delta waves and that's called slow wave sleep. And that's typically associated with very restorative sleep. Very, it's where a lot of your kind of, uh, kind of those repair functions we were talking about happen in that restorative period of sleep. And then we'll move into REM sleep, um, which is your rapid eye movement sleep. So that's where you dream. That's where all your muscles, your voluntary muscles are paralysed to stop you from harming yourself and stop you from acting out your, your dreams. They keep you, your voluntary muscles are nice and paralysed to keep you nice and safe and it's where you dream. And that sleep cycle lasts for about 90 minutes. Now the proportion of time spent in each of those sections of your cycle is proportionate to the time you've been sleeping. So at the beginning of the night, you may only have, in that 90-minute cycle, you may only have 20 to 30 minutes of REM sleep. But by the end of the sleep cycle, by the end of the night, sorry, those sleep cycles proportionately have changed. So your REM will then account for about 60 minutes of your 90-minute sleep cycle. So it's why often we say that a good quantity of sleep is as important as quality. Um, getting a good amount of REM sleep, a good amount of kind of that deep, slow-wave sleep is necessary. And to have that, we need a good amount of sleep. And in REM, we have which waves? Um, well, we, 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 we move into kind of slow wave sleep mm -hmm. at in kind of stage four and into REM sleep. But REM is kind of the non-rapid non eye movement sleep that we account for. It's where we become a little bit, our, our brain activity becomes a little bit more active mm -hmm. because we're dreaming and our kind of cognition and our brain kicks into action a little bit. Um, so certain areas of the brain become very active during REM sleep. Okay. Um, so there's one key part of the brain, the kind of the prefrontal cortex, which is at the front of your brain, which is responsible for logic, if you like, um, that switches off during REM. So it's why our emotional centres, our motor centres, are there's various centres of the brain that become very, very active, even more active than when we're awake. So we have, that's why we have very emotional dreams, we have very vivid dreams, we dream things that can't possibly happen in true life and that's because that pre the, the prefrontal cortex the kind of the logical part of the brain is switched off during REM so in the daytime we know that these things poss can't possibly happen because that logical part of the brain is saying to us no 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 that can't possibly happen but that's switched off when we're dreaming so that's switched off so we dream all sorts of wild and wonderful things 
and that's why. So, what is the um, circadian rhythm? So the circadian rhythm, our biological clock, I'm sure you've all heard of that. It's one of the processes, there are two processes that make us sleep, that drive our need to sleep. And so the circadian rhythm really is the master clock. It, it's one and the same thing. And it's, and it's important for us to be aware. I mean, I suppose we don't really know, need to understand uh, the, the minutiae of how it works, but it's important to understand <coughs> the way it works. And, and, and really it's responsible for all, everything... It, for our alertness, for our, a level of alertness throughout the day. So the circadian rhythm or our biological clock or our master clock, whatever you want to call it, is, is guided and is ruled predominantly and almost solely by the presence and absence of light and dark. So light controls almost all of our biological, hormonal and physiological processes. And the circadian rhythm is, is anything that oscillates around a 24-hour process. So it's, so it's it's the presence and absence of light throughout a twenty four hour period, is is kind of driven by our circadian clock. Okay, how do we explain then the productivity of the night owls? Well, we we that's <laughs> kind of verging into chronobiology there, and that's and that's and it's really interesting. And there's a lot of work surrounding that. There's a lot of work surrounding morning people and evening people, and you know, there's lots of kind of. It's very difficult to assess really whether you're a morning owl, a morning lark, or a night owl, whatever you call it. Um, but you know, we typically know if you're a night owl or a morning person, and there's a lot of work suggesting that we have a, a genetic propensity to sleep. So just like a, a regular clock, we don't all keep to the same time. You know, all of our master clocks are such, such, or our circadian rhythms, are, our master clocks are slightly different. We all keep to a different, a different rhythm, if you like. And some people really are night owls and function much, much better at night. And some people are, are morning larks. And we talk about chrono, chronotypes and uh, kind of um, chronotypes in terms of the four different types, four different chronotypes. And most people can slot into one of those four different types. And it really is comes down to your genetic propensity to sleep. And you said four. Mm. So we have we have <laughs> what else do we, we have? have kind of well there there are there are more than four but you know you can broadly speaking kind of classify yourself as a morning lark so a morning person someone who's really productive in the morning you get up nice and early you work hard in the morning and you're at your most productive you're most efficient and it's a morning person you can have a night owl so people who really don't get going until early afternoon and they're super productive late at night and they don't really feel like they want to go to bed till about one o'clock in the morning and they're not very good in the morning but you know that's that's your kind of classic uh, night owl you then kind of have people who are really just solar driven people who are fairly normal if you like within their sleep so they get up when the sun comes up and they go they're tired and sleepy when the sun goes down and that's a very kind of standard chronotype which most of us are really mm -hmm. um, and then you have people who are, are very troubled sleepers so people who have very fragmented sleep people who have sleep maintenance issues um, and those are kind of your insomniacs people with sleep issues and that's a kind of very different chronotype altogether so that's broadly speaking you kind of have four slots and, and we're all very aware of how we sleep and we all know if you're a night owl or a morning person you, you you're pretty aware of that so um, there's lots of questionnaires and lots of kind of assessments we can do with people to assess whether we think they're more of a they have more of a propensity to morningness or eveningness and there's lots of work looking at um, athletic performance and sports performance in relation to being a morning person and an evening person and then people have started to develop kind of training strategies um, coaches use training strategies often to determine when people are going to do their most intense training session in accordance to their kind of chronotype, their genetic chronotype, and their mm -hmm. propensity to sleep, and when they're more, when they're kind of more alert and more active and more productive. Uh, there's lots of work being done around that at the moment, and it's it's quite an interesting uh, kind of up and coming area in uh, in sleep research. But, okay. Yeah. yeah. How about altitude? How does altitude uh, affect? Um, yeah uh, performers and sleep so for example even i experienced this you go at altitude if you're not uh, climatized mm. you go with a 3000 meter hut torino or cosmic here and you go to bed at 10 and up till 3 3 a.m when you need to wake up you actually just turn from one side to the other and you can't really get that deep sleep why does that happen yeah there's well there's different reasons for that there's lots of different reasons uh, and all combined mean that generally you get a very bad night's sleep up at huts but we know that uh, you know if you're going up to a hut you get 
you go to bed late, you generally get very disrupted sleep that can be very noisy, there's people moving around, you suddenly become very conscious of being surrounded by different people. Um, people who are all moving around and making noise. We know there's a big psychological basis to this. We know people become anxious. They're anxious about the day ahead, the climb ahead, whatever they're doing, why, whatever they're getting up for at two o'clock in the morning. If they're doing a big climb or a very technical route, we need people become can become quite anxious about that or you know are aware of having to get up early and do that. Um, we also know that above, you know, when we're looking at above 2,500 metres, people start to become become affected by the uh, the difference in oxygen levels. So we start to see um, oxygen-related periodic breathing, uh, central apneas. People start suffering from apnea, uh, a type of sleep apnea that's related to a change in oxygen availability. Uh, we know that above 2,500 metres, 25% of people are affected by this difference or this kind of lack or, or lesser availability of oxygen and that results in insomnia and sleep apneas which then will fragment your sleep and mean that you wake up and you toss and turn and you, you have a poor sleep maintenance so it's very difficult to stay, stay asleep. We know above 4,000 metres almost 100% of people are affected by the difference in oxygen availability and that generally always affects people's sleep in terms of having periodic breathing issues and uh, sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, um, which is a which is a pause or cessation in breathing. So people have struggle with the kind of lack of availability of oxygen. So there's lots of it's a multifaceted reason as to why people toss and turn. But noise, different different environment, you know, being conscious of what they've got to do, anxiety and oxygen availability all kind of play a little part in very poor sleep for mountaineers generally. Okay, so in order to prevent this, we're just try to act on all these layers yeah, i mean trying to do what you can using earplugs you know trying to address the kind of the environmental factors use earplugs use an eye mask um try and sleep a little bit more before you go up um i know a lot of mountaineers tend to use uh sleeping tablets which are not recommended though hmm? they're not recommended no though, exactly so it's not but it's but a lot do people do because i suppose a lot of mountaineers or alpinists will take the lesser of two evils is it better to get some sleep but feel a little bit groggy when they wake up or get no sleep and feel a little bit groggy when they wake up i mean it's uh we wouldn't really recommend it i wouldn't recommend it we you know it, taking a sleeping tablet if you're then waking up at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning to do something very technical and potentially dangerous it's not recommended because you know taking a sleeping tablet affects your gross motor skills your fine motor skills your concentration uh, your posture, your balance, there's a lot that uh, taking a sleeping tablet, depending on what you're taking, of course, um, c- can really impact your movement and uh, concentration, decision-making capabilities. So it's best, where possible, to stay away from them. Absolutely. How does alcohol consumption and smoking affect our sleep? Oh, yeah. Okay, so alcohol alcohol affects sleep massively. So we've already talked we talked previously about REM sleep. So there's a lot of work being done surrounding REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep that is really critical throughout the night. I mean, I'd hasten to say that all stages of sleep are really critical. We wouldn't pass through them. Mother Nature wouldn't give us all those stages of sleep if they weren't all um, inherently useful for something. But rapid eye movement sleep is becoming increasingly uh, known to be related to kind of cognitive repair, cognitive function, cognitive... Um, uh, kind of capabilities if you like um, so that REM sleep is, is really quite and the slow wave sleep of stage four is really really important what we know is that alcohol is the most uh, it is it is the single most kind of profound REM sleep inhibitor suppressor if you like so drinking alcohol what alcohol does is we've all experienced having alcohol a little bit too much one or two or three or four glasses of wine or beer and we know that we fall asleep very quickly so alcohol works a little bit like a sleeping tablet in that it's a sedative so it sedates you so you know we fall asleep very quickly and I think that's where the kind of history of having a nightcap you know having a little drink before you go to bed to send you off to sleep comes from alcohol sedates you it's a sedative so you fall asleep very quickly we've all experienced that but then what happens is your capability, your ability to pass through that really important REM sleep period of your sleep cycle becomes suppressed with alcohol, depending on how much you've had to drink, uh, depends on how long it takes the alcohol to clear your system and how much of that REM throughout the night gets suppressed. 
So what we find is when people have had a lot of alcohol to drink or any alcohol to drink is that often people will fall asleep very quickly. They'll wake up feeling not very refreshed and that's for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that we know that during REM sleep we have this kind of cerebral flushing mechanism. So we know that in our body we have a lymphatic system. We don't have a lymphatic system in the brain. And so we know that throughout the day, as we're, as from the moment we wake up in the day, our brain is building up a series of metabolic uh, waste, if you like, kind of toxins that build up in the brain, and, and the body needs to flush that out. And we know that during REM sleep, that's the time when our body flushes all those toxins away. So one of the reasons we feel a bit groggy when we wake up having had a bit too much to drink is that we, um, those toxins haven't been able to be, well not toxins, I, don't, I shouldn't use that, the kind of metabolic waste if you like, kind of chemical waste, needs to be flushed out and it hasn't been. So we wake up feeling a little bit groggy after we've had a bit too much to drink and that's, we've all I'm sure experienced that at some point or another. But also what we find is that because this REM sleep has been suppressed, we often wake up after drinking too much or drinking anything with really very vivid dreams. And it's because our, one of the reasons for that is that REM sleep gets suppressed throughout a night's sleep. And then right at the end of the night, when, that, when all the alcohol is finally clearing our system, we get a REM, REM rebound effect. So suddenly our brain says, oh great, so like the alcohol's gone, I can now get some of that really critical REM. So we get grabs onto all that REM that it can, and we get very, very vivid dreams often. Uh, because our brain is desperately trying to claw back some of that REM sleep that has been suppressed throughout the night after drinking. So in short, uh, <laughs> sorry, it's a very long answer, in short... It's very um, interesting, actually, in I'm short, sure. actually, um, you know, alcohol has a huge impact on sleep, a very, it has a huge impact on sleep, and where possible, try and avoid it. I know we don't all avoid it, of course we don't, but just be aware, you know, being aware that it does impact sleep quite profoundly is, is really important. Then you can make an educated choice as to whether you're going to drink one glass of wine or four. Um, similarly with nicotine, nicotine is a stimulant, so smoking, we, you know, we just know that nicotine is a stimulant, so absolutely it, it, it means that you know, trying to sleep latency is affected with nicotine. So sleep latency is falling asleep, uh, can become impaired because it's a, it's a stimulant. Um, and also we have sleep maintenance issues often in smokers. Um, but I suppose the effect isn't quite as profound as with alcohol. But it is, yeah, it's something that of course affects your sleep, you know, as, as you know, all caffeine. And ca caffeine is probably the other one that really has a huge impact on sleep. But that's well publicized and well known I think um, but perhaps the mechanisms behind it aren't so well known but it's caffeine you know, caffeine we do try and say avoid that after lunchtime if at all possible if you're okay. sensitive sorry to interrupt but how do you know how do you realize you're sensitive to caffeine you know a lot of people these days are on autopilot in a constant flow of doing quite disconnected from their bodies you say that but I think a lot of people are really like you say disconnected and Caffeine is actually, well, ca I say caffeine at this, you know, I'm talking about having a coffee or a tea throughout the day. And obviously coffee, it has, they will have all these caffeine-based drinks of different amounts of caffeine in. But it's very habitual, you know, having a coffee, having a coffee at let's work. Let's go out, let's uh, go and have a coffee. It's 6 p.m. Oh, let's have a coffee. Let's, let's have, have a cappuccino. Coffee. It's a very habitual thing yeah. is one uh, way to look at it. Uh, another way to look at it is we, we tend to realise in our kind of sleep laboratory, if, you're drinking, if you have someone coming in drinking a lot of caffeine, it's generally because they need it, because they are underslept and they need a stimulant to keep them going throughout the day. It's a crutch for a lot of people. They need it to stay awake and to be able to focus and maintain focus and concentration throughout the day. Uh, caffeine has a six-hour half-life, roughly six-hour half-life, so it's really important for people to understand that that last espresso that you drink in the day you know, up to 12 hours later, it's only just leaving your system. So some people are not sensitive to caffeine, i.e. they metabolize it very quickly. But some people are really sensitive. But often people don't make the association between caffeine. Well, I had a coffee at lunchtime and now I can't get back to can't get to sleep tonight. You know, it's something to look at. It's something to be aware of. Think about when are you are you drinking too much caffeine? Now, you know, I think 400 milligrams is what's recommended in a day. You know, maximum. A lot of people and are drinking you a lot find more than that. In well, an espresso is probably uh, an espresso is probably uh, depending on obviously depending on the espresso, the coffee you're drinking, how strong you drink it. You know, an average espresso is probably eighty to hundred milligrams. 
you know, and I say 400 milligrams is a huge amount, but it's, you know, people, it's just be aware of the fact that it takes 10 to 12 hours for caffeine to leave your system. So if you're struggling with sleep, if you can't get to sleep, if you find that you wake, you're waking up a lot throughout the night, you have latency issues, maintenance issues, if you find that you're tossing and turning and waking up, just think about it. Just think about if you're drinking too much caffeine and when you're drinking it. You know, we think of caffeine as an accelerator, but it doesn't accelerate us. It blocks our brakes. You know, we have a, a we discussed earlier a mechanism by which we uh, need to sleep is our circadian rhythm, uh, our biological clock, our master clock, and that's really guided by the absence and presence of light. Um, so we've all experienced in the middle of the night feeling dreadful and tired and sleepy. You know, if you've been up all night, you feel dreadful. But then the morning, minute the sun comes up, you always feel a little bit better. And that's because of all of our biological process. Are kind of, our body's waking up, our body sees that the sun is out, the light is there. So it says, you know, it's time to wake up and it releases all those hormonal actions that, that make us kind of a little bit alert and more active throughout the day. But the other process that makes us sleep is called homeostatic sleep drive and it's a pressure to sleep so from the minute we wake up in the morning we have a uh, we have a lot of kind of metabolic uh, waste if you like or kind of that's, that's building up inside our brain building up inside our body that is waiting to be flushed out when we go to sleep preparing us for the next day but one of those chemicals um, we now know is called adenosine so the build-up of adenosine is is really intrinsically linked with this homeostatic sleep pressure so we wake up in the morning and our level of adenosine our homeostatic sleep pressure our, our, our drive to sleep is very very low but that builds and builds and builds and builds throughout the day when we cannot sustain that pressure any longer when we can't sustain that pressure of that chemical adenosine we fall asleep so it's a really nice satisfaction and deprivation model we get sleepy and we go to sleep i mean it's pretty simple that's how napping works you know, dissipate, and then we go to sleep and we dissipate all that chemical and then we wake up the next day and we start again. So caffeine blocks the build-up of that chemical. That's how it works. So it blocks the build-up of, of, that, of that chemical adenosine that's making us sleepy, so it stops the build-up of that sleepy chemical, if you like. But then what we, we, what we find is, and what we know is, that that chemical, we say it blocks it, but it doesn't stop building up. It's just... It's just collecting. From it. It's just collecting exactly. So it's collecting. So it's often why we find once that kind of caffeine wears off, we crash. You know, a lot of people will have a big caffeine crash or a big caffeine come down, and they suddenly feel exhausted. You know, once the kind of initial acute effects of caffeine have worn off, it's because that big build up of that, that adenosine has been collecting and collecting, and suddenly hits them. So it's you know, it's just being aware of how caffeine works and. We also find it in um, sports supplements. Yeah, caffeine. Absolutely, and it's it's the number one stimulant people use. You know, when we're when we're I mean, yes, when we're talking about ultra endurance events and ultra ultra running and uh, mountain running, you know, it's the number one stimulant people use. And absolutely, it's got a time and a place. And and yeah, if you need a bit of a pick me up, then there's not much better than caffeine. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's a great it's great to be used when it needs to be used. But if you're struggling with sleep and um, not sleeping very well, then it's it can also be quite damaging as well. So we talked about sleep and what happens in REM and how uh, the logical centers are inhibited. Mm -hmm. How about uh, when we're awake? How does sleep deprivation affect cognition and decision making? What actually happens to our body from a hormonal point of view? Well, I think sleep... So when we're talking about sleep deprivation, we... You know, it's important to say there's no... People always ask, how much should I be sleeping? How much should we sleep? And there's no one size fits all. You know, we are all different. It's really important to bear that in mind. And we all need different amounts of sleep. But I suppose we're looking from between seven to nine hours. We don't really want people to be sleeping for less than seven, six and a half hours a night consistently. It means that we probably class you as chronically sleep deprived or, or really, you know, you are deprived of sleep if you're sleeping less than six hours six and a half hours a night consistently over a long period of time um we find it's been we find that objective measurement of cognitive function when people are sleep deprived is very easy <laughs> we're easy we're, we're fairly easily able to pick up some kind of cognitive impairment when people are chronically sleep deprived and you know bear in mind i'm saying under seven hours, under around six and a half hours consistently. So most of us probably get that, or less. There's a lot of people who are working in cities and 
you know, in big cities or with demanding office jobs that are getting a lot less than that every single night. And we know that the cognitive impact of sleep deprivation is probably something we're all much more aware of because it's very acute. So we've all probably experienced a new baby, having been up all night working, having been having you know uh, uh, having had one or two nights where we've not slept very much, and we I'm absolutely certain we've all experienced the next day not being able to concentrate, having to stare at the same email three times, having to, having to read the same document three or four times. You know our, our concentration becomes massively impacted. Reactivity increased. Pardon? Reactivity yeah, increased. Exactly. Anxiety. Yeah, anxiety. Well, you know, I always say that mood is probably the biggest quick indicator of whether you're sleep deprived. If you are short tempered and uh, not being very pleasant to friends, family, colleagues, you can be pretty sure you probably didn't have a good night's sleep the night before. You know, mood is a great indicator. And we ask, we use that a lot with our patients as we look at mood. Are you, you know, how are you feeling when you wake up? Are you feeling irritable and grumpy and cross you know how is it how's your mood affected but we know in terms of cognition it's our decision making memory is hugely impacted we know that throughout the daytime we're collecting you know you can kind of think of your your the, the part in your brain that collects short-term memories is like a usb stick you know we're constantly collecting short-term memories throughout the day and but that memory usb stick has a certain amount of capacity you know we can't fill it up endlessly and it's sleep that moves those short-term memories from your usb stick in your brain to your long-term memory in your cerebral cortex but if you don't get enough sleep you don't empty your usb stick so the next day you don't have enough you don't have the capacity to take on new memories and that's called interference forgetting as we don't have the capacity to to remember everything that we're doing. And so we start to see memory problems and sleep deprivation, but task prioritization, mood, uh, impulsiveness is hugely impacted, anger, um, you know, social skills are hugely impacted. There's a lot of, uh, and the, but these are all very acute impacts of sleep deprivation. We know that um, the much more chronic impact of sleep deprivation would be the hormonal aspect that you've just, that you've just brought up is hormonally we know that our hunger hormones are impacted we know that cortisol which is probably the biggest one um is really impacted our stress hormone um it's one of our kind of more popular uh the ones that we've all heard before is our, uh, our stress hormone cortisol is hugely impacted and we're not able to kind of manage our cortisol our stress levels very well when we're sleep deprived so that's probably the most um pertinent hormonal change that we see um, that people would notice i suppose day to day You're also a mountain runner, just to specify. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I try to be. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you also your uh, lab is also here in Chamonix. Yeah. <laughs> so you bet you understand uh, the racing context, and we will explain a bit later why. Um, there are people who are able to go through an uh, endurance race, be it running, cycling, or another sport. And they go to, they stay up more than 20 plus hours without sleeping. How do you think do they make it? And what is the level of preparation one must have in order to be functional in these conditions of sleep deprivation? So one of our podcast listeners wrote me a private message and told me that during an endurance race, while stopping in a checkpoint to eat, he experienced a blackout and then just passed out for about 20 minutes without being able to control that state. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, a blackout for 20 minutes, I no, that doesn't sound familiar. That's, I would suggest that may be something else <laughs> rather than just falling asleep. I mean, he may have fallen asleep for 20 minutes, absolutely. You know, it's, it's very possible that depending how much he'd been up um, before, whatever he'd been, I don't know what he'd been doing or how long he'd been awake, but it's very possible he blacked out asleep. Um, if it was a blackout unconscious, no, not so much. That's not so common. But Apparently, like his sister told him that he just slept for 20 minutes. Yeah, okay, if it's sleep, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was obviously, depending on what he'd been doing, if he'd been absolutely exhausted, then yeah, very possibly he just fell asleep. And I'm sure she might have found it. <clears throat> it can often be very difficult to wake people up um, 
when they are during these endurance events and they decide to get a bit of sleep it's going to be obviously really difficult to wake people up because what we've discussed the kind of sleep cycle but when you are very very tired you've been up for 20 30 hours whatever it is you tend to not skip but you pass through those first stages very very quickly to get because your body knows right i've got to get straight to the restorative sleep i've got to get straight to rem the the rem yeah the good stuff the kind Mm -hmm. of the slow wave sleep and the rem um, so it's very possible that maybe he was just very deeply asleep, which I hope he was, rather than being completely blacked out. <laughs> <laughs> because hopefully a medic was there if he was blacked out. But um, yeah, people, you know, people, you know, ultra running, uh, ultra endurance events are incredibly popular now. They're becoming, you know, they're, they're very popular and people are doing them uh, in cycling and rowing and all sorts of different activities and People absolutely do stay up for 20 plus hours, 20, 30, you know, in the case of the Ultra Child Mont Blanc, 40 hours plus. How do people prepare for it? I think a lot of people practice, experience. Um, I think it's very difficult to prepare to stay up for 40 hours. People manage it. It's amazing what your body can do when you want it to do it. Um, Some people manage it better than others. There are certain strategies we try and talk with runners. It's better to try and strategize your sleep. We don't recommend trying to push you know unless you're elite obviously an elite runner is a very different thing but because they're doing their race a bit faster and they don't (laughs) they don't need to stay up for quite so long but you know if you're a kind of an average runner and you're looking at staying up for 20 30 40 hours we absolutely recommend that you sleep and I think there's a big macho element to these endurance events and a lot of people I speak to, a lot of athletes I speak to also, you know, what's your strategy or what what are you planning on doing? And they'll say, oh no, I don't need to sleep. I'm just going to keep running. You know, I promise you, if you just take five or 10 minutes sleep, you'll make up that time in terms of performance. You know, the physical detriment that that intense sleep deprivation has to your performance will be will be mediated by just a little bit of sleep you'll perform a lot better you know so it's it's definitely worth if you're thinking if anyone's thinking of doing these kind of ultra endurance events strategize your sleep and there's lots of ways you can do that and that's and you know i work with athletes a lot to strategize sleep throughout an event to discuss when they're going to sleep how they need to sleep when they know they need to sleep and 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 the strategy surrounding that but it's good to sleep It's, it's definitely good to not try and not stay up for the whole event but People can do it, um, and people can be functional. People just don't function very well. The majority of runners aren't functioning that well, but they'll get around these races. Mm-hmm. They'll survive them. Okay. They won't, they, won't, they won't be racing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea is not to survive them. Exactly. To, to that, race you know, them. Yeah. And that's my message: is the advice. You know, the advice is not to survive them because well, you know when we well, start would you looking, put yourself into that situation, yeah. Because I think because I think people get worried about losing time. You know, I think the majority of people are not looking for podium places. So I would suggest time doesn't really matter that much. You know, a ten minute nap is not going to make the. Di- it will probably mean that you'll finish the race a little bit faster, if anything. And that's what we've seen in our research, that actually you'll probably finish the race better. You'll probably finish the race. You'll definitely finish in a better better state and you'll definitely make up that time in terms of your performance. Um, But there's a a macho element surrounding it. I think people think they don't need it. They like to demonstrate that they can get around these races without sleep. And maybe they can, but they won't be performing very well. Okay. Are these uh, small amounts of sleep called micro-napping? Yeah, people can micro-nap. Yeah, this is the technical term. Well, (laughs) yes, yeah, or a power nap. You know, a power nap is the same, but, you know, it depends how much people want to sleep and when they want to sleep, and there's lots of planning that can go into that and surrounding that. But, yeah, absolutely, even if someone can just take during these events, even if someone... If someone really doesn't want to stop, then have someone to, next to you, have your support crew that'll wake you up and have five minutes. Five mm-hmm. minutes is better than nothing. You know, you often find, though, we will, you know, the, 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 the power nap is often discussed, not just in terms of sport, but just day to day. People talk about taking power naps and, and a nap is very good. And, and, you know, we always suggest that it's kind of 30 minutes or less. And that's because we don't want you to move into that deep sleep or the REM sleep because typically once you wake up during or after deep sleep and REM sleep you get a real 
sleep inertia it's called and it's you feel really groggy you feel terrible generally a lot of people will feel dreadful if they wake up after a nap and it's because they kind of napped for the wrong amount of time if you like so we want to keep you in that kind of light stage of sleep and then you then you the first stages like you need to be non-REM when you do micro napping yeah so if you if you take a power nap you'd you'd look to sleep for 20 to 30 minutes and that and after 30 minutes you won't have moved into your deep sleep, your deep slow wave sleep, your stage four or your REM. So actually you wake up feeling quite refreshed. If your alarm clock goes off after an hour and you're in the middle of that super deep sleep and REM sleep, then actually that's when you tend to feel like you've got dreadful sleep inertia. You feel really groggy and tend to feel worse actually. And it's the same if you're racing, if you're competing in an ultra endurance event. Just think about the timings. It's why people, I mean, most people won't be sleeping unless you're doing a very, very long race. Most people won't be sleeping for more than 20 minutes at a time. Um, But if you're extremely exhausted, you've been going for 35 hours, you may feel a little bit of that sleep inertia after you wake up, that kind of groggy feeling, but it soon passes. So it's still worth napping. I heard you talking at uh, Chloe's festival about the um, sleep banking strategies. That was the first time I heard about it. Yeah, so... Sleep extension theory is something that's talked about quite a lot. I mean, we in, in general day-to-day life, sleep banking does not work. Sleep, you know, you can't bank sleep. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, so you can't sleep for five hours every night during the week because you're working so hard and then think, oh, I'll catch up at the weekend. You know, it doesn't work like that. If I deprived you of a night's sleep tonight, if I didn't let you sleep for a whole night and you missed eight hours sleep... But then I said to you, right, for the next three or four nights, you can sleep as much as you like. You would never catch up those eight hours. So generally, as a general rule, I would say sleep banking doesn't work. Don't do it in your general life. However, if you're planning for an ultra endurance event, if you have a big race coming up, um, a big, you know, 100 miler or whatever whatever you're doing, you know you're going to be out of bed. You're going to miss one or two nights sleep in some cases. That's when we would say it's sleep extension does have an impact. Sleep extension, sleep banking, if you like, does have an impact. So I think most people, if you speak to them prior to a race and we say, what's your sleep strategy? What, what's your kind of banking theory? Have you, are you, are you, have you been doing anything to try and plan for your lack of sleep? Most people will say to us, oh, yeah, I've just been trying to get a bit more sleep for the past few nights. But as most of us will experience or it. It's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to go to bed and get more sleep. Most of us, our circadian rhythm is uh, programmed, if you like. We all kind of program our own circadian rhythms to a certain extent in that we all typically go to bed at a certain time and we typically wake up at a certain time. And that's certainly what we should do. If you're not doing that, then that's a really key thing. You should be doing that. So we generally say we go to bed at 10 o'clock at night and most of us wake up about 6.30 or 7. So it's good to have a routine. Absolutely. Routine, routine, routine is the most important thing in terms of sleep hygiene. If you're Mm -hmm. struggling with sleep, a routine is the number one thing you can do to change that. But when we're talking about sleep banking in preparation for a race, if you generally go to bed at 10 and wake up at 6, for example... Two or three nights before a race, if you suddenly put yourself in bed at 8.30 or 9 o'clock, you're not going to go to sleep. It's very unlikely that you'll go to sleep. And if you do go to sleep, you'll probably wake up an hour earlier than you normally do. It's very difficult to suddenly go to bed and get more sleep in preparation for a race. And also, we also have the kind of psychological aspect of of race preparation playing on our minds. We're anxious about the race. We're worried about all sorts of different elements to do with the event that we've got coming up. So what we have started to think is a good idea, and what I, when I work with athletes um, in terms of race preparation, we start to change sleep habits a little bit before, two or three nights before the race. We'll start looking a couple of weeks before the race. We'll start to look at uh, sleep extension and manipulating sleep a little bit um, in preparation for a race <laughs> to, st- to really uh, maximise the efficacy of um, sleep extension and sleep banking. So... It can be really useful, but not. It's not something that works in day to day life. So please don't uh, think I'm suggesting that for mm-hmm. you know day to day life. But you know, in preparation for a really big event, it can be really effective, and we know it is effective. Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay. Yeah. So it doesn't really apply to alpinism or mountaineering when you need to be reactive. Now there are good conditions. Now you're going to go up the mountain. <laughs> Well, I suppose if you're going to be that reactive, no. If you if you can't plan, I mean, if you know that you're going to climb, if you're going to climb 
a peak within a certain week's window, yes, it can apply. But no, if you're just kind of going to wake up one day and <laughs> decide to go and climb, I it's suppose it can't really work. <laughs> but, you know, we should all be getting good sleep anyway. So if everyone's getting, you know, everyone should be going for more than seven hours. If you're getting good sleep, it is amazing what our bodies can tolerate and how our bodies recover afterwards, actually, with sleep. So, you know, if it's a one-off, it's an occasional thing, we can all manage a night out of bed. We can do it. Mm-hmm. to a greater or lesser extent to you know but we can all do it and we will all recover eventually afterwards you know it'll take us a few nights maybe take us a week but we will recover eventually um but you know it's just you can plan for it and you can prepare for it and you can maximize um your kind of sleep potential mm-hmm. uh, you have been involved in a six-year study on utmb runners can you describe the main findings I think it's really interesting what you yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the what past, you're doing there. The, the past few years we have been this study's been running for yeah, I think about six years now. I've been involved for the last uh, for kind of four or five. Uh, we are a couple of uh, we're sleep researchers from the University of Littoralopa. So along with Remy Herdiel, I work on running the sleep deprivation study at the UTMB. So what we're really interested in looking at is how does sleep deprivation during a race affect physical and cognitive performance. So what we've started to do is a week prior to the race, we send out volunteers uh, little sleep watches, activity monitors, uh, kind of not, uh, they're a little bit more um, advanced than a kind of Garmin or a Fitbit. So they're kind of <laughs> clinical activity monitors that we ask people to wear for a week prior to. So we start, before the race even starts, we start looking at how, what's people's physical activity. How are they sleeping? What are they doing? Are they sleeping a lot? Are they sleeping a little? And then for seven checkpoints throughout the race, so I'm sure everyone listening knows what the UTMB is, but it's a 180-kilometer foot race with 10,000 meters of positive elevation. So it's a big race, and for most people, it involves two nights out of bed. And there are nine checkpoints, I think, for the start and finish. So we are up uh, at seven of the checkpoints. And throughout the race, we stop the runners at all at these kind of various checkpoints and we will ask them lots of questions. So we'll look at how sleepy are they? Have they been taking stimulants? Have they had a nap? Where did they take a nap? How long was their nap? We take objective measures. So we look at their psychomotor vigilance, which is alertness. So it's a reaction time test. Uh, we look at uh, dig- uh, digit subtraction tests, which are very difficult. Um, we ask them to do that. We ask them to do all sorts of little assessments. And, and it sounds kind of long and laborious, but it takes about five minutes in each checkpoint. So we obviously don't do this with very elite runners because they haven't got time to talk to us, unfortunately. But we do. We follow runners around the race. We take all these different measures and we're really interested in how their performance is is looking. They wear their, their, their activity monitors, the ones that we've given them a week prior to the race. They keep wearing them throughout the race. And we talk to them and we monitor them throughout the race. We monitor them at the finish line. And then they keep wearing their activity monitors for another week after the race. So we can see what recovery looks like and, and how, people, how people sleep and recovery looks after the race. Uh, so we've been doing that for quite a few years now. Unfortunately, not this year. But, um, yep, we've got some really interesting data surrounding uh, bank sleep strategies So the, and, and, and what happens really with those who have a sleep strategy and those who don't. So we know that people who don't have a sleep strategy, people who kind of try and get a bit more extra sleep before the race and then just kind of see how it goes throughout the race and generally don't stop to sleep or just take, you know, five minutes and don't strategize their sleep, probably finish a little bit slower than their expected time. We see that um, injuries go up a little bit. Um, we know that people are a little bit more injured. Those who don't sleep uh, experience injuries because they're tired and their kind of movement patterning and their gait and their all the kind of biomechanics surrounding their movement change when they're very tired. It changes in all of us when they're very tired. But you know, trying to run a race like that, it's hugely impacted in my um, results. We know that so injury uh, risk, um, napping, it kind of lowers injury risk. Um, we know that all the runners who do adopt a sleep strategy, because of course we ask them, do they employ a sleep strategy prior to the race and during the race, um, they generally complete the race faster and they generally complete the race. <laughs> we find a lot of the people who abandon the race are the ones who have no real strategy or just kind of decide not to just push through and not 
not not take a nap when they feel like they need one. Mm-hmm. So we've had some really um, interesting results have come out of the study over the over the years, and we've published that data. So I can absolutely share that share those publications with you, so you can share them with your listeners. Oh, definitely. I'm sure yeah. they're curious. I will just uh, add the link at the end on yeah, the website absolutely. of the festival. Send you, yeah, send you the publications, and everyone can kind of read all about it. But it's a fascinating study, and we're really lucky to do it because I think field research in this in this domain is incredibly difficult i mean the logistics surrounding doing this study are just are incredibly complex you know following 40 50 60 70 100 runners over the period of 48 hours requires you know we're a team of about 20 students and senior researchers and we all are as tired as the runners by the end of it (laughs) to be honest because we're up for two days following the runners around and, and uh, you know, finding them out of 2,000 runners, we have to find these 40 and chase them around the, chase them around the course. So it's a logistical um, Everybody's sleep-deprived, de- whoever is in touch with the Every, Everyone's <laughs> sleep-deprived, no, but it's a, it's a great study. But it's, a very, it's also a very human... It's a very, um, it's a very human study. It's fantastic to be able to support people doing this race and be part of their race and be part of their story and experience the emotions that go alongside it. You know, we experience all sorts of amazing things uh, with the runners. Uh, you know, we ask about hallucinations, auditory and visual hallucinations. So we have some fantastic kind of stories and, and data, you know, that go alongside mm-hmm. this. this uh, one of our students has published all the hallucination data, which is fascinating as well. And which apparently are linked to lack of sugar in the brain. Mm, more <laughs> lack of sleep in the brain. It's uh, Hallucinations are partly, I mean, sugar maybe, but partly due to a lack of REM. So mm-hmm. if you suppress REM, if you suppress that rapid eye movement sleep enough, mm-hmm. your brain will say, I'm going to take it when you're awake. <laughs> and and that's, what, that's partly what hallucinations are. It's, it's REM sleep being taken because your brain is just saying, I'm so desperate for it, I'm going to take it. So basically hallucinations are, occur when you're in that state between sleep and wake. Mm-hmm. It's called REM rebound effect. Mm-hmm. And it's your brain taking that REM, it's REM taking that REM <laughs> because you're not letting it have it. So it's going to take it whether you like it or not. Um, yeah, so it's REM rebound. So that's, Can't really fight your body that much. <laughs> You can't fight it that much. It's going to win. It will always win. So it will always win. It's much cleverer than we are. So Yeah, so we were talking about emotions and how cool it is to be part of this, yeah. uh, such an event, and how you're monitoring the runners and how the logistics, they're very complex. Mm. And that you're 20? You said you're a team of 20 people. Uh, around, this. yeah, 15 or 20 mm-hmm. students and, and senior researchers. And we all, yeah. We manoeuvre ourselves around all the different checkpoints and, and collect the same data with the same runners at each checkpoint and then have built over the years a great bank of a bank of data. So we replicate the study year on and it's very difficult. You know, field data is typically very difficult to control because we can't control the weather, we can't control the conditions, we can't there are so many variables that we can't control, but we do what we can and we've got some great data out of it. So awesome. yeah. I'm sure the listeners will be curious to find. Yeah, out well, I will. I will absolutely. I'll share with you the the publications that go along with it, so you can absolutely read all about it. Um, there's a lot to share. Uh, do you have any do's and don'ts in terms of sleep strategy for mountain endurance sports? Um, the do's and don'ts. Do just try and plan your sleep. I think is you know real. There's only a certain amount you can do. If you're talking about ultra endurance events, you know, planning your sleep, thinking about your sleep is really important. Don't take sleeping tablets. You know, we discussed earlier sleeping tablets are, you know, I'm aware that people have a certain level of anxiety before an event, a climb, a race, or whatever it's going to be. There's a certain level of anxiety. People medicate with sleeping tablets, with alcohol. Please try not to do that if you're going to. You know, we've discussed their sedatives. They just affect the quality of your sleep. You don't get good quality sleep. Um, if you're going to use sleeping tablets, please discuss them with your doctor. Go and speak to your doctor, your GP, um, prior to using them. And absolutely, there's always a time and a place, but where possible, try not to use them. You know, relaxation techniques are really powerful. Meditation is really powerful. 
um, any kind of psychological tool, uh, and there's lots of there's lots of things I can again share with your um, listeners afterwards. There's lots of tools you can use to kind of manage stress and anxiety prior to an event to help you sleep a little bit better. Sleep extension, trying to plan your sleep, think about your sleep, think about what type of sleeper are you. We were talking about chronobiology before, or chron- you know, kind of chron- sleep chronotype, your genetic propensity to sleep. Think about, are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? Use that to your advantage. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tool we can use. You know, if you're thinking about your training prior to the race, thinking about your napping during the race, when are you most alert? When do you feel naturally you're most tired? Plan your sleeps around that. Um, plan your sleep extension prior to the race. Um, are all kind of really useful tools, I would suggest but nap use the use the power nap it's really effective and you will run better you will perform better after you've had a nap i promise (laughs) so use the nap which would be the ideal sleeping conditions light temperature okay so if i suppose if you're going to ask the top five sleep (laughs) hygiene tips uh, routine is the absolute absolute most important thing if you're struggling with sleep and all of these tips of course if you're struggling with sleep. There's a lot of people who don't require these tips because they can sleep in broad daylight, in boiling hot temperatures, with no routine, but that's fantastic. But if you struggle with sleep, then routine is really important. You know, we've discussed our circadian rhythm or our biological clock. To a certain extent, we have a part to play with that. We, you know, we've, I'm sure we've all experienced um, waking up five minutes before your alarm clock. Lots of people use alarm clocks to wake up and you'll find you'll start to wake up five minutes. But, you know, you're starting to train your body. You, there, are, there are things called Zeitbergers, which is your external cues to sleep. So there's a certain amount of control we have over our sleep, when we sleep, how we fall asleep. You know, we are, our, our need to sleep and our control over sleep is modulated by eating times, by light and dark, by our own behaviours and external environment. So control those things. So routine is really important. We, in our sleep clinic, we would say the absolute most important thing you can do is go to bed at the same time every night and wake up at the same time every morning to help your body know when it's meant to go to sleep. If you're all over the place, you're going to bed at different times, you're waking up at different times, your body doesn't really understand what it's trying to do. You're not helping it. You're not helping yourself. You're not helping your body initiate sleep. So bed and wake at the same time is really important. Um, help your circadian rhythm uh, keeping it cool our body lowers its we are kind of circadian rhythm our biological clock lowers needs to reduce our core temperature by up to by one to two degrees to initiate and maintain sleep so if you're struggling to sleep think about the temperature in your room don't sleep with a huge duvet with big thick pajamas and the windows closed if you're struggling with sleep and thermoregulation i.e body temperature open the windows keep it cool your body is desperately, you know, as soon as the sun starts to go down and it starts to get dark, your body realises the cells in your eyes that detect light and dark kick into action and they start to prepare us for sleep. They start to prepare the initiation of sleep. So your body starts to think, well, I need to start cooling down in preparation for good sleep. So if you inhibit that or if you don't aid that, or facilitate that, it's just another thing that's going to inhibit good sleep sleep uh, latency so going to sleep well and staying asleep so we find lots of people who wake up throughout the night are very hot Um, so think about your temperature Uh, darkness we've discussed you know light and dark is key it's absolutely key some people can sleep in broad daylight and don't have a problem with it and sleep with the curtains open that's absolutely fine and that's fantastic if you are very sensitive to sleep if you find that you wake up very early in the morning you wake up throughout the night Think about the light sources in your room, take away the blinking lights, take away the chargers, have blackout blinds, wire an eye mask. It's really, really powerful and it can hugely impact sleep. So routine, keep it cool, keep it dark. Um, Thinking about the times that you exercise and eat is really important as well. Uh, So don't exercise too late, don't eat too late. Have how much time before bed, before you eat, before you sleep? Ideally, two to three hours. Mm-hmm. Modern life doesn't always dictate that we can do that, so mm-hmm. do your best. But you know, try and have a big as gap as possible between exercise or eating and bedtime. Give yourself, give your body the time to digest and kind of and rest before you go to bed. Mm-hmm. 
So those would be some kind of key key things to do. Where can we find out more about your work? And you were saying you're working with athletes. And... Yeah, I'm working with athletes. I um, have a website, which I can give you the link to. You can just say it. I can also. just say it. I'm always <laughs> very shy about saying it. Um, it's charlotteedleston.com. Okay, we will add it at the yeah, bottom of the page. Yeah, you can add it. charlotteedleston.com. That's got lots of information about what I do, um, how you can work with me if you want to. And I work with athletes, I work clinically, and I work in research. So I've got lots of different hats that I wear. I'm very interested in kind of sleep and sleep disorders and sleep troubles. So I have two different kind of areas of interest. One is just working with people who have sleep issues and that's not necessarily athletes. And then the other big impact area of my work now is working with athletes, um, working, and not necessarily elite athletes, just anyone preparing for a big event, a big race, rowers rowing the Atlantic I work with, uh, people who are doing any kind of event that is going to require, that have some element of sleep deprivation, I work with them to periodise and schedule and strategize sleep um, and kind of rest throughout that event. So, yeah. Lots of, lots of work, <laughs> lots of work to do. Very interesting work and useful. <laughs> yes, yes, I hope so. I hope so. Thank you, Charlotte. And to everybody, uh, check out the bottom of the page where you will find out more information about Charlotte and the links to the study she promised she will give yes. us. <laughs> Have a great day. again for listening to Transylvania Mountain Festival podcast. If you like our show, feel free to give us a rating and a review on iTunes or any other app you like listening to podcasts. Until next time, this is Anka Berlo, your host. Enjoy the verticals.